Thanks be to God and thanks to Emily too. Uh, good evening, everyone. Let me offer a prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. May we accept this word as your truth. May we focus on its main theme, which is Christ and what it means to be the people of Christ. And may we be receptive to the Holy Spirit who brings that word alive and brings Christ alive for us and in us. Amen. Now, I've spent most of my working life as a nurse and as a teacher of nurses. And I've sometimes wondered how many of my nursing colleagues have thought to themselves, you know, this job would be okay if it weren't for the patients. And I sometimes wonder that about teachers too. With all those reports, there's a few uh, heads nodding here, all those reports to write and all those inspections to get ready, ready for, I could get on with my work if it weren't for those students. And what about us as followers of Jesus Christ? Aren't we sometimes tempted to think, you know, following Jesus would be okay if it weren't for all these Christians. <laughs> they just get in the way. And at that point, we perhaps need to remind ourselves that um, there's actually no way to be a Christian without being a member of Christ's people. As somebody once put it, there's actually no way of belonging to Christ except by belonging gladly and irrevocably to that marvellous and extraordinary ragbag of saints and fatheads who make up the one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. It comes with a package. You can't be a nurse without patients. You actually can't be a teacher without students. And you can't really be a Christian without belonging to the church, the body of Christ. Trouble is, Christians have difficulty in getting on with each other. And it seems like, maybe especially in this time of a vacancy, a search which has likely lasted many months for a senior minister here at Holy Trinity, uh, we, God is telling us repeatedly from his word that we need to pay attention to our unity in Christ. Because not only is this the fourth message in a row on a Sunday evening from this passage in Romans, the beginning, uh, the beginning of chapter 14, which is all about the same kind of thing, but if any of you were also here this morning, hands up who was here this morning at Trinity. Okay, well, you're going to feel really got at by the end of this evening because you've got it, uh, um, the same kind of theme again. We had from Romans, uh, from, excuse me, Ephesians 4, Will speaking at building up Christian unity. And now I've got a slightly different tack on Christian unity this evening, which is really around, so, okay, Christian unity is good and it's great. We need to work at it. That's Ephesians 4. Well, what happens when we disagree with one another. That's really kind of what's going on in this passage that actually begins in uh, Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. So please do have a Bible open in front of you. It's page 1141, Romans chapter 15 and the first 13 verses. So here we have um, uh, just a, a hugely important theme from the New Testament 
not simply, it, it, it isn't actually an accident. We had a series of four on the same theme on Sunday evenings, and we had the same theme the Sunday morning, because the New Testament is full of it. Jesus prays for unity in the Gospels. The Acts of the Apostles model Christian unity. And then almost every epistle in, in the New Testament urges and encourages Christians to, to come together, to stay together, and to work together. So here then we have the conclusion of a section that began in Romans chapter 14 and verse 1 uh, about what uh, Paul calls the weak and the strong. Now the weak were those mainly Jewish Christians with rather sensitive consciences. They couldn't bring themselves to give up their cherished Jewish dietary practices and keeping their Jewish holy days. And the strong, on the other hand, were those mainly Gentile believers who had more robust consciences. They rejoiced in the liberty that they have in Jesus Christ. If they had heard us singing earlier in our service, uh, the sun, if the sun, uh, the sun has set us free... And so therefore we are free indeed, as we did sing in one of our earlier songs, they would have rejoiced and said, Amen, brother. They knew that there is nothing in the gospel that prevents Christians from, to give these examples, from eating meat, or that requires them to observe certain days as more holy than others. So that's the kind of the general drift of this whole section And Paul still won't let this go in this uh, section of chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. I think I can uh, sort of put a a searchlight, a spotlight, on one verse in particular to help us to focus our thoughts on what Paul particularly wants to get across in this passage. That's verse 7. Nigel has already alluded to it. Uh, Romans chapter 15 and verse 7 says, Accept one, one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Three things from this verse. Here is a plea. Accept one another. Here is a basis for that plea, just as Christ accepted you. And then an ultimate aim or purpose, a motivation for that, for that plea, to bring Praise to God. Let me take each of those in order as I draw in teaching from elsewhere in this passage too. First of all then, a plea, accept one another. In terms of the weak and the strong, the weak should accept the strong and the strong should accept the weak. But the particular emphasis that Paul has throughout this passage and, uh, is on the, on the strong accepting or welcoming uh, the weak. What does it mean for the strong Christian to accept the weak Christian? Well, in verse 1, it's about bearing with that weaker brother or sister's weaknesses and failings. They are weaknesses, they are failings, they ought perhaps to be stronger than that, but they aren't. And it's the duty, the responsibility, the privilege of the stronger Christian to bear with those weaknesses and those failings. 
I love walking and trekking. And uh, a few weeks ago, I had a message from a friend saying, do you fancy, and it sent to me and one or two other friends, do you fancy trekking in Nepal, in the Himalayas, in the autumn? Well, I thought about it for about half a second and said, yeah, I'd love to. Ever since then, I've been thinking, ooh, do I really want to do that? Hmm, it could involve some climbing, and I'm a walker rather than a climber. I've never, never put on a pair of crampons in my life. I don't know what to do with an ice axe. Uh, ice axe. I don't know how to attach things to ropes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but even trekking at 6,000 metres, 20,000 feet, is I just don't know what altitude sickness might do to us, and this kind of thing. One of the things, as I've sort of been humming and harring about whether to say yes or no to this friend, is uh, when I spoke to him most recently about it, he said, well, of course, we, we kind of gear the whole thing to the weakest member of the party. Um, and I thought, well, that's actually really reassuring. Uh, sort of thinking it through, yeah, I might be, for all I know, the weakest member of the party. So what he's saying to me, in effect, is we'll go at your pace rather than ours. If you get altitude sickness and we don't, well, we'll give you more time to acclimatise or we'll help you down to a lower altitude so that you, you, so that you recover. Or it might be that one of us turns out to be the weaker and then you help us. We will support you. If necessary, we would even carry one another down if it came to that. If, so the, the stronger wouldn't be striding off ahead uh, of the weaker, saying, come on, come on, faster, faster. They will be adapting their pace and their skills and their risks to those of the weaker member or members of the party. That's really what Paul is talking about here. It's not about the strong becoming weak, but adapting to the needs of the weak so that both can accept one another. So it's partly about bearing with that weaker Christian's weaknesses and failings. But also more positively, accepting one another means, in verse 2, seeking the other person's good, to build him up. And that building up, again, is a concept already mentioned by Paul in, uh, in chapter 14. I spotted it just a few moments ago. But can you see that word edification? Can I somebody just shout out the, the verse number? Verse 19, thank you. <laughs> I found it Now, the word edification, again, edifice, building an edifice, building up. Very strong, very powerful um, New Testament concept and idea. And that's what accepting one another uh, means, in part. It isn't just putting up with one another. It's not merely tolerating. It's certainly not indulging one another. It's about supporting one another in ways that will do the other person good. We'll build him or her up. So a question for us tonight is, am I a builder or am I a wrecker? I saw them building, uh, I saw them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a dusty town. With a yo-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and the side wall fell. I asked the foreman if these men were skilled as the men he'd hire if he were to build. He laughed and said, oh no indeed, common labour is all I need. For those men can wreck in a day or two what builders had taken years to do. I asked myself as I went my way, what kind of role am I to play? Am I the builder who builds with care 
measuring life by the rule and square? Or am I the wrecker who walks the town, content with the role of tearing down? Builder or wrecker? Or let me put it more briefly uh, this way. Why do you think we go to church? I guess if I asked ten of you, why have you come to church? Nine at least would say, well, I come to worship. And yes, we come to church to worship. But here's another scriptural reason for coming to church and sharing in other ways with fellow Christians, home groups and all the rest of it. Edification, building one another up. So that's a few thoughts on the plea itself. Accept one another, welcome one another, work with one another as fellow Christians. But now the base, secondly, the basis of, for this plea. Paul says in verse, back to verse 7, just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. And back to verse 3, he says, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written. And then a quote from Psalm 69, which we regard as being very much a psalm about uh, predicting Christ's suffering and death and atonement. Quoting from Psalm 69, Paul says, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So putting words into Christ's mouth, the insults of those who insult you, God the Father, have fallen on me, God the Son. So Christ did not please himself, on the contrary. Of all people, Jesus had the greatest right to please himself, didn't he? But think about it. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He lived on the charity of others. He refused to be made a king. He washed his disciples' feet. He allowed himself to be spit upon, cursed and scourged. He endured the horror of God-forsakenness. He suffered a shameful and agonizing death, none of which he deserved, all of which he did, because he chose not to please himself, but to do good to others. And if Christ endured all of that for us, Paul's argument is, then surely we can endure a little for one another. Bible teacher called Kent Hughes asks the following question. How did Christ accept you and me? He accepted us with our many sins, prejudices, and innumerable blind spots. He accepted us with our psychological shortcomings and cultural naivety. He accepted us with our provincialisms. He even accepted us with our sheer stubbornness. And that's how we are to, are to accept one another, just as Christ accepted us. And when we come a little bit later in our service to receive the bread and the wine, we are reminded of the fact that our Saviour did not please himself. And as we kneel side by side at the rail, we act out this great truth that we accept one another because Christ has accepted us. So the plea itself is accept one another. The basis of, for the plea is just as Christ accepted you. 
But now thirdly, the purpose of this plea. The purpose of the plea, uh, back to verse 7, in order to bring praise to God. Now I think there are in this passage three contenders for what might count as a Christian's highest aim or purpose or motivation. Contender, Contender number one is pleasing ourselves. And that's actually not a stupid or, 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 or thoughtless contender. Because after all, as Christians, we have liberty. As Christians, we are free. So we might easily conclude we are therefore free to please ourselves. That might indeed be our highest goal and aim. But no, says Paul in verse 1, our goal is not pleasing ourselves. Okay, so what is it? Well, second contender of our highest goal or aim or motivation is pleasing others. Yes, says Paul, you're getting warm now. Verse 2, each of us should please our neighbour. We've been seeing that all along. But, Paul says, there's an even higher goal, an even higher purpose or aim. And that's the aim of ultimately bringing glory to God. In order to bring praise to God, says Paul in verse 7, merely reiterating what he has already said in verse 6, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you were taught in Sunday school what I was taught. It's simplistic and it's a bit naive, but there might after all be some truth in it. What Where does joy come from? J-O-Y. Well, I was taught it comes from putting Jesus first, others next, and yourself last brings joy. Well, that's the order in which Paul uh, uh, puts things here. Jesus and the glory of God first, the good of others second, and pleasing ourselves last. That doesn't mean we go around being miserable, not doing nice things. That's not what it's about at all. But it is about putting God's glory first and other people's needs, preferring others', uh, uh, preferring others needs to our, to our own. Um, it is about that. And it brings praise to God. Yes, we praise God with the band as we lift up our voices in praise. But there is a silent praise that is equally acceptable to God. The silent praise of Christians living and working together in love and in harmony. It brings praise to God, says Paul. So that's the three points I have. um, I've glanced at that. A few points to say by way of hopefully bringing it all back home by way of further application. In Paul's day, this, these this disagreements were all about diets and days, what you could eat and what kind of days might be holy or special. A generation ago, we might have had a discussion about, um, is it okay, excuse me, for Christians to drink alcohol? And uh, what kind of things is it okay or not okay for Christians to do on a Sunday? But uh, Christians are much more relaxed about those kind of things, certainly in the good old C of E, than they used to be. And so they aren't particularly live issues for many of us, I fancy. So what might be uh, 
without wishing to stir up a hornet's nest, or without wishing to put the cat amongst the pigeons, what might be a few elephants in the room before I run out of my animal metaphors? Let me try a few points of disagreement amongst Christians here in this church as elsewhere. What might be some of these disputable matters that Paul refers to also in chapter 14 and verse 1? Number one, inerrancy, inerrancy. Some Christians regard the Bible as totally without error in every topic on which it teaches, including scientific matters. Other Christians struggle to square this with some of the things they read, especially in the Old Testament. Secondly, the charismata, the spiritual gifts. Some Christians have a high expectation that God will work miracles through his people today. Other Christians think that miracles, I mean real miracles, are the exception rather than the norm. Thirdly, women's ministry. Some Christians believe that God desires all roles to be uh, within the church to be equally open to women as well as to men. Others think that this is an, 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 an unhelpful blurring of God-given gender distinctions. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I think about those things. Some of you know. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Neither am I going to tell you on which side I think the strong and the weak are. What I'm going to say is they are some, and there are other matters on which Christians disagree. disagree. And none of the the examples I've I've given are trivial. I actually don't like it, and I hope you don't like it either, when on matters like that, people will simply sort of say, well, that's your interpretation, and this is mine. Um, Just just forget about it. They're too important for that. And that's kind of postmodern laziness to say, oh, that's just your interpretation. Let's find out what God's interpretation is. Let's try anyway. So they are not trivial, and they do have practical implications, not merely theory either, inerrancy, the charismata, and women's ministry. But even these things, important as they are, do they prevent us, disagreement that is to say, does disagreement prevent us from recognising each other as fellow Christians? Are they, in other words, gospel issues. Because Paul refused to compromise when it came to the gospel itself. Just look on to chapter 16 and verse 17. All, uh, most of the first part of chapter 16 is greeting nearly 30 different named people. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Greet... I can't pronounce some of these. Read them for yourself. <laughs> Read all these people. But then do you see how he says in verse 17, uh, at the end of all these greetings, I urge you to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. So there are certain people who actually need to be shunned. Why? Because they are undermining the gospel and the work of the gospel. Or read Galatians again. I mean, it's it's full written in in Galatians that Paul uh, is very clear about what to do about those who would actually undermine the gospel of Christ. But there are other things, non-trivial, important, practically important, but are not 
gospel issues. So Paul would not uh, compromise on the gospel issues, um, but he wants us to accept one another, even on matters of conscience where we have convictions, uh, where we possibly can. Uh, A Christian called uh, John Wesley, uh, um, pioneer Methodist, evangelist and church planter and so on, uh, put it very well, I think, about 250 years ago. The, the language is slightly quaint, uh, but I think he puts it wonderfully well. Wesley talks about what he calls a Catholic spirit. What he means by a Catholic spirit is what Paul refers to as a spirit of unity in verse 5. So a spirit of unity is what Wesley is talking about. He says this, A Catholic spirit is not an indifference to all opinions. This is the spawn of hell, not the offspring of heaven. This unsettledness of thought, this being driven to and fro and tossed about with every wind of doctrine, is a great curse, not a blessing, an irreconcilable enemy, not a friend to true Catholicism. A man of a truly Catholic spirit, let's say with a spirit of unity, has not now his religion to seek. He is fixed as the sun in his judgment concerning the main branches of Christian doctrine. Observe this, you who know not what spirit ye are of, who call yourselves men of a Catholic spirit, only because you are of a muddy understanding, because your mind is all in a mist, because you have no settled, consistent principles, but are for jumbling all opinions together. Be convinced that you have quite missed your way, and you you know not where you are. Go first and learn the first elements of the gospel of Christ, and then shall you learn to be of a truly Catholic spirit. So, let's be united, firmly united, on the truths of the gospel. But where the truth of the gospel is not at stake, let's work hard to include one another in. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that brought him in. Puritan called Richard Sibb says, uh, proposes a, a, a competition between Christians. He said, it would be a good contest amongst Christians, one to labour to give no offence, and the other to labour to take none. So what should we do? And finally closing, what should we do when Christians disagree, when you disagree with me or I disagree with you over an important but non-essential matter? Just a few bullet points. Remember that not every disagreement is even worth mentioning, let alone breaking fellowship over. Number two, examine your motives when disagreeing with that other Christian. Is your motive self-interest? Love, edification, God's glory. Thirdly, respect the other person's conscience. He or she holds that belief, mistaken as you think it to be, in sincerity and with conviction. Fourthly, by all means, meet up with that other person face to face. Share a meal, share your stories, share your understanding of scripture. Share your vision for the work of God. Fifthly, listen before you speak. Sixthly, 
by all means express your view with passion and conviction, but also with gentleness and respect. After all, you might be wrong. And lastly, keep coming back to the centre, which is Christ and his gospel. And then may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit is the wonderful way in which Paul closes that passage and with which words I close. Amen.